Healthy church leadership is vital for the health of an overall church. This should go without saying, yet we must say it. We must say it and we must proclaim and consider generation by generation the abiding truth that's been the case for all the history of Christ's church. That healthy church leadership is vital to the health of an overall church. There's no getting around this. If you have a congregation of people who want to pursue Jesus, but the church's leaders are biblically disqualified, then there is poison in the well, you might say. There's poison in the well. We know that in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his protege who remained in Ephesus and is in Ephesus in order to sort some things out. According to chapter 3, 14 and 15, Paul hopes to come to Timothy, but until then, Timothy is to put certain things in order, to prevent certain things from continuing, to initiate certain things and to establish them. A major problem in the church in Ephesus was the presence of false teachers. It's what made Timothy's job so challenging. And these false teachers were distorting sound doctrine and were undermining the truth of the gospel. It's not that Timothy just differed in some preferences with them or on some issues in the triaging of doctrines of primary importance and those of the agree-to-disagree kind. The problems in Ephesus were not of the agree-to-disagree kind. The issues going on in Ephesus went to the heart of things that produced spiritual health if sound doctrine was advocated, but if sound doctrine is undermined, false teaching hurts people. False teaching harms the souls of God's image bearers. And therefore, the problem with these false teachers is not only what they teach, but the effect that their teaching has. They have influence. They're leaders, and so they have influence. And when you have ungodly, unwise leaders in a church, there is a negative effect on the people in the church. According to Paul's instructions to Timothy, church leaders should be biblically qualified for such service and influence. And he's going to spend some verses in this letter, a paragraph really in verses 1 to 7, talking about the qualifications of these overseers. And no doubt, the reason he emphasizes certain qualifications is probably because of what, in the opposite sense, characterized false teachers in the Ephesian church. In other words, you start to see what Paul's highlighting to make sure the leaders in the church are characterized by, and you might wonder, could it be that among these false teachers, the opposite qualities were present? We begin a new chapter in 1 Timothy today, remembering that chapter divisions are not original to the biblical text. Though not inspired, they're helpful And yet, starting a new chapter, we're not in a new argument. How does the end of 1 Timothy 2 relate to the beginning of 1 Timothy 3? We should wonder this as readers, starting into a new section of the letter. The end of 1 Timothy 2 addresses leadership and teaching in the church. What does Paul begin 1 Timothy doing? There's some 1 Timothy 3, that is. 1 Timothy 3, he begins this making continuity with the previous section. He's continuing to talk about leadership and teaching in the church, isn't he? And we could be specific that at the end of 1 Timothy 2, Paul has argued that God's design and creation has established the leadership of men in the church. So we have to ask the question in light of chapter 2, what kind of men? What would make them biblically qualified? This paragraph in 1 Timothy 3 endeavors to answer that question. Now as he unpacks these qualifications required for church leaders, he does this in a letter that's preserved for the churches of Christ beyond Timothy, which means... Even though Timothy is addressed here, the church in Ephesus is responsible, like Timothy, to pursue soundness within their church leadership. 
This means 1 Timothy 3 matters for everyone who's not an overseer. It matters for the congregations of Christ throughout the ages that the requirements in 1 Timothy would be what is expected in the congregation for those in leadership. The emphasis, you will note, is on character primarily. The kind of person the man is. It's interesting from time to time when you hear among uh, maybe like seminary students and those who are pursuing ministry, the frustrations that can be found in pursuing a place of church leadership and pastoral ministry. And they will say from time to time, do you know what their certain qualifications and, rec- and requirements in certain churches are? And you, you listen to them kind of rattle off different things churches have expected. Oh, we, we expect our minister to have 10 years of experience and a family and three seminary degrees and be really young. Would you want him to get married when he was 12 and start having a family immediately? I mean, you imagine the, the requirements that can be really deviating from what's clear in 1 Timothy 3. Not that certain practical considerations aren't helpful. But you can imagine churches approaching things from purely business and pragmatic perspectives that overlook more profound requirements of character and virtue in their leaders. According to 1 Timothy 3 and the parallel in Titus chapter 1, character is the overriding concern for Timothy and Titus and the elders that are to be established there. We're not going to look this morning at the whole paragraph. We're going to begin this paragraph, and so this will be the first of two sermons on this paragraph. Verses 1 to 3 will occupy our thinking, and verse 1 is a trustworthy saying. Verses 2 to 3, 11 qualifications. Verse 1, a trustworthy saying. Verses 2 and 3, 11 qualifications. The trustworthy saying, that language should sound familiar to you if you recall chapter 1, where he said that there's a a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So he uses this uh, preface language of this trustworthy saying when he's going to introduce something very major in the argument. And in chapter 1, it was about the incarnation and the mission of Jesus. The trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that he's come into the world, Jesus that is, to save sinners. This trustworthy saying, and not the last time he'll use this kind of language, this introduces the notion of the overseer. The content of it, which is totally faithful and believable, he says, it is trustworthy. You can trust this and receive it wholeheartedly. It is an if-then statement. An if-then statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, then he desires a noble task. This if-then statement is about this overseer term. I don't often give uh, language behind the English text of how these things are translated, but I especially think certain words can connect us to denominational distinctives of other uh, fellow believers in our our, uh, realms and circles of life. This word overseer is from the word episkopos, which you might hear part of that word in episcopal, episcopalian. Language like that. The word elder is from the word presbyteros, which is where you hear presbyter or presbyterian. And so some of these uh, traditions of faith are, are rooted in particular terms and understandings of those terms. Now, as Reformed Baptists, we have a history of dealing with these terms as well. And so I'm going to argue, uh, you would expect nothing less, I'm going to suggest and argue accordingly from uh, the way we see this as uh, the best reading of the text, we believe. This term overseer, or elder, or pastor, is a term synonymous with the way Paul 
in his letters, in the book of Acts, and Peter in his letters use this language of church leaders. Church leaders in the New Testament are called pastors or elders or overseers. We're more familiar with using language like pastors and elders. But Paul uses the term overseer here, and he's not talking about something different. An overseer is one who exercises oversight over something. Okay? There's something over which sight is being exercised. We can pull together some evidence from Acts and Titus to make an important claim. I don't want you to just hear me say that elders are the same as pastors and pastors are the same as overseers. It's the same equivalency. There is evidence in the New Testament for this. And so consider with me a few verses. In Titus 1, which is a parallel passage to this, he doesn't say appoint overseers in all these towns with these qualifications. Instead, he lays out character qualifications in Titus 1 saying appoint elders in every town. And these qualifications are the same as what you would notice in 1 Timothy 3 for overseers. That's interesting. That he's using a word in Titus 1, a word in 1 Timothy 3, and the qualifications are for the same kind of leadership influence. In Titus chapter 1, he calls them elders. In Titus 1 verse 7, in this parallel passage, same paragraph, he uses not the term elders, but overseer. Both Titus 1 5, Titus 1 7 say elders and overseers, same paragraph, same qualifications. This has led interpreters over the years, some interpreters to say, it looks as if Paul is treating this notion of an overseer and this notion of an elder as being the same individual, the same role. I think that is correct. I don't see these as different roles, but the same role. This word uh, episkopos or overseer can be translated bishop. And so in church leadership, if you hear someone speak of a, a bishop or an elder or a pastor or an overseer, we would say that's about the same position. That is the, that is the same position. And we're not going to use the term bishop here. We'll use the term overseer. That's what the ESV uses. But just for that point of clarification, I wanted to say that. In the book of Acts, if we move outside of Titus, in Acts chapter 20, he's sending for the elders of Ephesus. It says in Acts 20, verse 17, Paul called the elders of the church to come to him, and then he addressed them. And listen to what he says to the elders. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, that's an interesting description of the job responsibility when he's bringing out the elders of the church. He's calling these elders, and he says, God's made you overseers. And then he says to them, that you are overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It seems as if within 1 Timothy, Acts 20, and the book of Titus, elders and overseers are the same idea. You have to ask, though, well, what about someone other than Paul? Does someone other than Paul speak this way? Yes, Peter does. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses the terms Paul does, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God. That language is pastor the flock. Shepherd the flock is the metaphor of taking sheep to uh, depict the flock of people, image bearers, saved by the blood of Christ, 
And then to shepherd or care for the flock, to be that metaphor applied for the role of the elder. I'm telling you elders, he says, 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock, pastor the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Now that sounds like overseer, okay? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So these elders are to shepherd. In fact, it is important to notice that the term for, or the verb shepherd to shepherd occurs 11 times in the New Testament, nearly all times for actual shepherds. We remember shepherds present at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. But there are times when shepherd, shepherding, the act of shepherding is applied as a metaphor. Pastoring is done by the apostles in John 21 and in 1 Corinthians 9, as well as elders and overseers in Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Peter 5, and by Jesus. And so what you have is this verb of shepherding or pastoring, if not connected to actual shepherds of actual sheep, it is a metaphor for those leading in the flock of God, either by the Lord Jesus himself, the chief shepherd, or the apostles and elders of the churches of Christ. The consistency of, of this is helpful because some people have said, what if we could say that while women might be prohibited from being elders in the church, we could say women can be pastors in the church. The problem with that distinction is it's not a distinction made in the New Testament. The New Testament ties together the responsibility of shepherding to the responsibility of what elders and overseers are doing in 1 Timothy, in Acts, in Titus chapter 1. So I think the best reading of this evidence, in light of what we've studied in 1 Timothy and into chapter 3, is that the office of overseer and the task of shepherding the flock of God is something to be filled by biblically qualified men in the church. Here's the if-then statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, you know, to aspire to something is to have desire for it. To aspire towards something means to seek out something as a goal. And that's because you would see that goal as desirable. You would want to pursue it. Paul would not tolerate the idea that people should be forced to be overseers in a church. They, they should rather have an inward desire and an inclination toward it. And that's a good thing. Those who serve as overseers should be those who have aspired to that task. They must be biblically qualified, but it's not biblically qualified against the state of their heart toward the task. In fact, he says that if anyone aspires to this office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. So the pursuit or aspiration of this task is described as a good or noble task pursued. What would this idea of a noble or good task uh, be describing? Why would it be a good or noble task? I'm going to suggest four reasons why being an overseer is a noble task. First, an overseer is a noble task because it brings the leader into deeper connection with the members of the flock. This is a unique aspect of pastoral ministry, that over time and in the main, there is a deepening in connection and relationship with the people of God and the leaders of Christ's church, Lord willing. An overseer is a noble task, number two, because the focus is upon the hearts of those in the congregation and nothing matters more than our hearts before God. There, there is a, a care of souls, in other words, 
that the task of an overseer is engaged in. The focus upon uh, the uh, congregation's hearts is key to this task of being an overseer. Therefore, it is a noble one because of the inner importance of the heart before God. Number three, an overseer is a noble task because church leaders have the joy of proclaiming the doctrines of the faith. And so we rejoice in being able to give instruction in and deepening our understanding in the glories of the gospel and the doctrines of Christian instruction. This is a noble task because of the very good news with which we have intimate connection. Number four, an overseer is a noble task because church leaders have the responsibility to defend the truth against error and against false teachers. This is that metaphor of shepherding. A shepherd not only wanted to lead sheep into green and fertile pasture, but a shepherd was to be on the lookout for any threats and predators and wolves that would seek to do damage in the lives of those in the flock. And therefore, an overseer is a noble task because of the responsibility to defend the truth and over against error and over against false teachers for the sake of the beloved church. For these reasons and more, being an overseer is a noble thing. You know, I think a lot about this. I've been in some form of Christian ministry since my college years. And so being in a number of different churches and in more than one state, um, I can testify even by experience that throughout all the challenges that ministry brings personally and professionally along the way, there is an undergirding joy in the task of caring for congregations and loving the people of God and working alongside leaders. I can say, uh, even by experience, the truthfulness of Paul's objective statement here, that it is indeed a noble and good work. He says not only this trustworthy saying, but begins to unpack requirements. If these who aspire to the office of the overseer discern within themselves that longing or desire for that noble task, what sort of person should they be? In verses 2 to 3, let's look at these 11 requirements Say 11 requirements sounds like a lot. Well, just remember I stopped the sermon at verse 3. Okay, so verses 4 and following add a few more. So next time when we're in 1 Timothy 3, we'll look at the rest of it. These, In all seriousness, these 11 requirements go rather quickly, and there is some significant overlap among them, I think you'll notice. But he does open in verse 2 with the word, therefore. Therefore, an overseer must be. The nature of the task is good and noble. Therefore, the connection that we need to draw is that the aspiring ones to the task are those whose character must aspire toward the kind of calling that this oversight involves. It is a noble thing. And therefore, aspiring to the office of overseer being a noble task requires a certain kind of person. It's a noble task, therefore... An overseer must be, first of all, above reproach. This is the first of seven qualifications in verse 2. Then there are four more in verse 3. The first seven qualifications in verse 2 begin with this, an overseer must be above reproach. That's quite general. There have been some teachers who have said, what if, since we don't have a colon in the original language or anything like that, punctuation is just often added and implied by uh, translators for the sake of clarity and understanding, we, we could say... Let's put a colon right after the word reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. First qualification. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Just keep going, he would say. Just keep going. Like, here's, here's what I mean more about being above reproach. 
Reflect with me for a moment, though, about this first qualification. It's quite general, but it reminds overseers that their position is lived out in public. Okay, this is a very much a, a public life. And being above reproach means there are things that people can hear and things that people can see. Words and behavior. To not be above reproach or to be someone who brings reproach upon a task that is noble would be that someone's words and someone's actions are being conducted with others, conducted socially and publicly in a way that is dishonorable. It's no longer above reproach. In fact, the words and behavior are bringing reproach upon something. An accusation that is just. Behavior that is disqualifying. I think we'd want to infer from this that an elder in a church must be free from scandal. That somebody who is living scandalously would not be above reproach, but would immediately disqualify themselves here. This means that the reputation of the leader matters. Being above reproach doesn't mean everyone you would ever meet would always think the same thoughts of, but it would, it would invite a reflection on what the general understanding from those who know the Lord and love the Lord would have about someone's reputation. And if there are genuine assaults and accusations that stick in the words and actions of the leader, then I think the above reproach qualification here is compromised. We, we would want to ask questions like, would the leader's words and actions cause you to think less of Christ? There might be some leaders whose words and actions would cause others to think wrongly of the Lord Jesus whom they represent. Would the leader's words and actions cause you to think less of Christ's church? Is the beauty of the gospel in some way diminished? I think these are the notions associated with an overseer must be above reproach. Number two, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. There is some dispute in church history about this expression. An overseer must be the husband of one wife. You could, you could very woodenly put it this way. The overseer must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. And a common understanding that I don't take is that this rules out anyone who is not married or anyone who is divorced and remarried from serving as an overseer or an elder. The, the translation, uh, overseer must be a husband of one wife, can sound like they could only have had one wife. And there can be congregations seeking to conform their polity and their organization to the word of God. And they say, if someone has been divorced and remarried, they cannot serve because of what this says. The problem is, it doesn't say you only can have one wife. The wooden, the wooden uh, rendering of this is that you are a one-woman man. Now, that might mean someone is only married once. But what about the spouse who dies and then the overseer remarries? Here you have someone who has a second wife. Or what about someone who is divorced with biblically justifiable reasons and is remarried in the sight of God in a jubilant way? We have here an overseer being a, a one-woman man, not likely excluding those who are unmarried or those who are divorced and remarried, but rather ruling out unfaithfulness. A one-woman man could be talked about in the ancient world as someone who was to be faithful to, that, that is the woman for me, that is the spouse for me, and they want their, wife, their life to be characterized by faithfulness to their spouse. That's the reading I take on this phrase. I think it's the most likely understanding in Paul's context. 
He is talking about a husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man, a man of one woman. This would also rule out polygamy in the ancient world. This would rule out uh, unfaithfulness sexually in the ancient world. An overseer was to live an exemplary married life of faithfulness, where his devotion to his wife is not in doubt. And that if someone does compromise their devotion to their wife, that is a disqualifying situation that would remove someone biblically from the task of an overseer. We want to be careful, though, to recognize what would be maybe expected in the ancient world and what there are exceptions for. You might expect you would see these men growing up in Ephesus or elsewhere. Most of them would probably marry. Most of them would probably start families. Well, here he talks about a husband of one wife. Would that mean that someone who's not yet married could not serve as an elder? That's an unlikely inference to have to draw. What this is saying is, here's the situation. Because later on in chapter 3, he's talking about keeping children submissive. Would someone not be able to serve as an elder if they're only married but have no children? You have to realize that what would be typical or standard things to expect that he's addressing, and then what we might not infer in a negative way. Um, it has been the case here at Cosmosdale that we have had unmarried elders. And I think this is not only appropriate and fitting with Paul's notions here, but we would also expect that those who are married would exhibit devotion to their spouse. Uh, number three, an overseer must be sober-minded. The word temperate or sober-minded means more than just with regard to alcohol. I think later in verse two, uh, sorry, in verse three, when he says not a drunkard, he's going to bring up the notion of alcohol more specifically. But this third qualification, elder over, uh, overseer or elder, same thing, must be sober-minded, involves clarity of thinking. A person who is an overseer must be a person who sees clearly. He sees what matters. He sees threats when they arise. He sees how to handle matters within a church. He sees how to conduct himself honorably. He sees how to build others up. He sees how to handle the word of God. He sees with sober-mindedness, which means his vision and clarity are not compromised and distracted. And this goes very well with the fourth qualification. An overseer must be self-controlled. Self-control over against what? Well, think about the opposites here. The opposites of excess or rashness, hastiness, impulsiveness, focus here and there and everywhere drawn by this or by that. The sober-mindedness and self-control go very well together and would lead, no doubt, to this fifth qualification. An overseer must be respectable. An overseer or an elder must be someone you can respect. That's the notion here of respectable. That doesn't mean they would do everything as you would do it. The overseer must be honorable, however. They must conduct themselves in ways that are not dishonorable. To speak or to behave dishonorably means that that person is not respectable. They should behave with decency, propriety, setting an example. When you see and hear the overseers of the church, you should think that they are respectable people and not indecent. Number six. An overseer must be hospitable. An important term in the ancient world where there were needs abounding. Not that that is less the case in 2024 across the world. But it is to say in the ancient world, because churches would primarily meet in, initially in homes. And a lot of interaction between people who were traveling. And needs that would arise. Hospitality has in mind the sharing of resources or being generous with oneself. 
And therefore, the leader must set an example in the treatment of those outside the church. I think it could also include treatment of those inside the church, but hospitality in the ancient world was especially something that would characterize a spectrum of interactions socially. And therefore, a leader needs to be someone who seeks to love others and is not closed off toward those who would need help. One writer puts it this way, given the dangers of travel in the empire and the economic uncertainties faced by many believers, early Christian mission depended on the hospitality of other churches. So you think about how important it would be that leaders and churches would be hospitable, especially in the fellow gospel work of those in traveling around. Seven, the seventh qualification, an overseer must be able to teach. This is a quality that extends beyond the character realm, doesn't it? In fact, this is the first time where something that sounds like a non-character issue is present. Well, what if someone is able to teach, but they have terrible character? Well, then they're not to be in church leadership. What if someone that was really gifted in communication, and they can really be compelling in what they present, but they're just rude and disrespectful and mean? Well, then in 1 Timothy 3, that rules them out from church leadership. This overseer must be able to teach. Titus 1.9 says the same thing. Remember how I said Titus 1 is a parallel paragraph to this one? Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The ability to teach, then, involves communicating not just the truth of God's words for the growth and, and building up of the church, but the warding off of false teaching and the rebuking of those who would contradict sound doctrine. And then we move from verse 2 to verse 3. Verse 3 adds the remainder of the 11 qualifications. Verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So these are four. Four other qualifications to the previous seven, which fills out our list of 11. Each of these begin with a not. Notice that in verse 2, these are positive characteristics or what is to be pursued and what should characterize a person in uh, oversight of the church. And then in verse 3, here are things that are not to be present. And the word not negates each of these terms. Not a drunkard. Not violent but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. This continues the list then. So verse 3 gives us number 8, doesn't it? Here's the eighth qualification. The overseer must not be a drunkard. If the overseer cannot control himself with regard to alcohol, this means he cannot be sober-minded, which was an earlier qualification. This idea of drunkenness is forbade in both the Old and the New Testaments, and therefore an overseer must set an example in self-control and sober-mindedness, not only so that he can see and think clearly, but so that his words and actions do not bring reproach upon the noble and good task. The overseer must not be a drunkard. Number nine, the overseer must not be violent, must, but must be gentle. The pairing together in Greek literature often has drunkenness and violence side by side. Notice that that's the order here in the eighth and ninth qualification. The overseer must not be a drunkard, he must not be violent. Now we know that violence can exist without drunkenness, but we also know violence can be fueled by it. Here the overseer must not be a drunkard and must not be violent, but gentle. One writer puts it this way. The degrees and modes of violence that the word might express are numerous. And he gives examples. Bullying, verbal abuse, pushing and shoving, actually physically getting to that. 
The prohibition then should be understood as a, a wide net encompassing behavior with one's words and actions that are abusive. The overseer must not be abusive, must not be violent. The opposite, in fact, in verse 9, but must be gentle. Gentle with others, not violent with others. Gentle with others, not pushy with others. Gentle with others, not abusive with others. And that means the overseer pursues peace and unity among the flock. He knows that abusive words and actions produce division and harm image bearers. And he doesn't want to do that. The overseer doesn't prize worldly means to getting one's way. In fact, the overseer is trusting the Lord, seeking to be gentle among the flock in order to be a peacemaker. Loving unity among believers. I think this goes as well with the 10th qualification. Number 10, the overseer must not be quarrelsome. If there is a peaceful and unity-loving demeanor within the overseers and the people in the church, then something that would stand out is someone whose words are quite quarrelsome, like the false teachers in 1 Timothy 6. According to 1 Timothy 6, the false teachers in verse 4 have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words, which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. That's a long statement in 1 Timothy 6. What Paul has in mind is quarrelsomeness doesn't produce in the congregation what will honor Christ and bless the image bearers in their hearts and lives. Quarrelsomeness produces the opposite. These false teachers, like in the other opposites of these qualifications, are probably characterized by quarrelsomeness. He even says as much, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy 6. So he says, what should the overseer be like, Timothy? The overseer is not to be like them. They're problem-causing. They're stirring up and dividing the dissension and griefs that result. The overseer must not be like that. The overseer must not be quarrelsome. What he's demanding then is a peaceable attitude among overseers where uses of threats and violence are never on the table. He even says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 that the men in the church should lift their holy hands without anger or quarreling. Have you noticed that these qualifications for the overseers so far sound like good wisdom for Christian living in general? I mean, he says sober-mindedness, self-control, Respectable, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, which will be our 11th one in a moment. It's not as if the people in in Ephesus are to look at these qualifications and say, all right, the overseers are not to be quarrelsome. The rest of us, though, you know, it's like, what, what does that mean for the rest of us? Instead, what you notice is Paul calls the church in Ephesus to godly living. And in the pursuit of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel... In fulfillment of the Great Commission, the churches of Christ must be led by those who set an example in this. That the character of Christ-likeness and conformity to the virtues and fruit of the Holy Spirit is something to be pursued by all believers in Christ Jesus. And to have an example set in those respects by the people who lead the church. The 11th and final qualification we see this morning, the overseer must not be a lover of money. This no doubt plays into the false teachers' snares and temptations. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. He says that these teachers, these false teachers, were deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
And then in one of the most famous statements about greed and money in the Bible, 1 Timothy 6, 2, uh, 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the greed, the avarice, the money-loving words and actions of the false teachers do not set the example for leadership. It's disqualifying. These leaders are to not be lovers of money. Again, that doesn't mean the congregation can have any old view and attitude toward money in their own lives. This is to say instead, what should the church expect of their leaders? That in the virtues of Christian living and the bearing of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that the leaders are held to a standard as an example. 1 Timothy 6 verse 5 lays into that, doesn't it? So in chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, what have we noticed? We've noticed first of all a trustworthy saying, an if-then statement. And that to aspire to the office of an overseer, it is a good thing. It is a noble work. It is a good work because it deals with the church of Christ whom Jesus loves and has bought with his blood. And it deals with the message of the gospel and the sound doctrines of the faith which build us up in our souls. Nothing matters more than our souls before God. And we also notice that just like this term is about these tasks, these responsibilities, Titus and Acts tell us that an elder or a pastor is the same notion. And we also believe uh, here in this church and taught elsewhere um, in, uh, in evangelicalism that multiple elders, multiple pastors, or multiple overseers, just to use these terms interchangeably, is God's plan for wise leadership in the church. That it not be a single pastor or a single elder or a single overseer idea, but a multiplicity or a plurality of elders, which we have here at Cosmos Dale as well. And we have that. We have four elders here right now because we believe that a plurality of elders is the biblical instruction and example in the Gospels, Acts, and Letters of the New Testament. And in addition to this important office, which is a noble and good task, in verses 2 and 3, there are 11 qualifications, nearly all of which deal with the character of the leaders of Christ's church. We live in very pragmatic times, and I don't think that that would have been a, uh, something Paul's day would have been unfamiliar with either in different respects. But the pragmatism and the consumerism that dominates so much of the thinking in the, in the world in which we live in the West isn't the thing that is to shape the mindset and the leadership of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than what a person is able to do, the kind of person they are matters above all. Because no matter what they can do, if the kind of person they are is disqualifying, then they are unfit to serve as overseers of Christ's church. Some applications from this, in addition to notions I've said so far, is that you should pray fervently for the elders of your church. You should think about the overseers and by name ask God to bless them, uphold them, and guide them and fill them with wisdom and righteousness. You should continue to pray that the Lord will raise up biblically qualified men to serve as overseers of the flock of God. For a plurality of elders, we believe is the biblical model. I would say not only think about our church. You may know other churches, even with great needs within their spiritual leadership, because of certain issues going on in the church that perhaps stem from what I called earlier poison in the well. 
And that may mean we need to be mindful of the leadership situations in churches where conformity to the Word of God and biblically qualified leaders would be necessary because it might be lacking. Oh, you should pray for the churches of Christ. And that the Lord would raise up those biblically qualified to serve as overseers. The care of souls is a noble task, and it continues until the return of the Lord Jesus himself. It tells us in 1 Peter 5 that Jesus is the chief shepherd. So if elders are to shepherd the flock, they do so in reality as under-shepherds themselves of the chief shepherd who is the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 5 verse 4, Peter says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know what this means, friends? The chief shepherd appears because the chief shepherd lives. The chief shepherd reigns. The chief shepherd shall return. This means that church ministry is not in vain. What we do, what we learn as we grow, all that we pursue together for the glory of Christ Jesus, it is never in vain. It is not in vain because the Lord Jesus lives and is the chief shepherd who shall return with glory. Therefore, the oversight of souls remains a good and noble task for the Lord Jesus has died upon a cross. He has risen from the dead. And this gospel is what makes this a task good and noble. It is a gospel of good news, of salvation in his name. And the, the quality and content of the teaching in a church matters in terms of its doctrine and soundness for the sake of the souls and the care of those souls that gather. That's why this is good news in the Lord Jesus in the ministry of the church when the Lord is building up his church and filling it with leaders who care for you and love you to build one another up in the gospel of the Lord. What a mercy from God. God is so kind and so faithful. The Savior has risen. The Savior reigns. The chief shepherd shall return. And until that day, we press on and persevere in faith, loving one another, being built up in the doctrines that we believe. Let's pray together and stand as we prepare to sing our response hymn.